I want to thank uh, the leadership team for giving me the privilege of being amongst you for these for a year and a half. This is my last opportunity to preach this morning, and so I've been looking forward to this for some time. But I want to thank uh, you for the just the precious way you've looked after Judy and me. We're here through the month of April, but uh, this is my last opportunity to share. And uh, some months ago, actually, uh, Judy said to me, as we thought about this last Sunday, she says, you know, she gave me an idea to preach. And so this is what I'm going to do this morning. But if uh, I go a little long, then I'll, you'll just have to blame Judith for that. <laughs> Shall we bow for prayer? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable, Father, in your sight. You who are our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. We all need reminders. I know I do. Reminders to make sure we don't miss anything. An appointment, a date, an event. One of the things Judy and I have done over the years, and we did this morning again, was we remind our family of events. And so every birthday of our children first, then eventually every birthday of their spouses, then every birthday of our grandchildren, and every anniversary, we pick up the phone. And we call whoever it is, and we sing, believe it or not, her and I, we sing, happy birthday or happy anniversary, And this morning we sang to one of our daughters and her husband, who was still actually in bed, uh, sang happy anniversary to remind them. As we were reminded, having been at their wedding, did their counseling and spent so many lucky hours with them and their children over the years. Reminders are critical for us so that we don't miss certain things. Historical markers are reminders. Now, many of the reminders today that we have are electronic. You may be carrying uh, in your purse, on your belt, in some other particular place this morning, a device that is, re- that is already programmed to remind you for something coming up in the next day or so, and it's electronic, something we never had, of course, a number of years ago. And the Lord's Supper is a reminder. And in the Baptist life, it's a reminder every month for reasons that leadership amongst Baptists have decided, as opposed to once a year or every three months or all the other options. The Lord's Supper is a reminder. Society needs reminders. I remember back when some of my friends used to put a string on their finger. Anybody ever did that? Put a string on your finger to remind you, oh, that really dates us, doesn't it? But, of course, that is not necessary anymore. But to remind us of something that we really didn't want to forget about. The study of history involves the learning experience of others. And very often the study of history, in one sense, is a reminder of what has gone on in the past so we might learn from history and not repeat the errors of the past. Well, that doesn't always work, does it? And of course, there are great events in the Bible that we remember, and that we would like to remember. And sometimes we create ways to make those reminders available to us. 
You might be reminded with me for just a moment. In Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham, when Abram uh, left the promised land at the leading of the Father through the Holy Spirit and came to a new place, he built an altar to remind the family of the promise of God. Um, an altar was built and is recorded in Scripture when Abraham took his son Isaac to the mountain as a sacrifice and in the process of that experience built an altar. Jacob at Bethel. When he returned home after many years was reminded of his experience with God where he took the, and, and damaged his leg in that prayer all night long. And when Jacob got back to that place, Bethel, years later, he paused before he went to meet Isaac and built an altar to be a reminder of what God had done in his life. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 24, we have these words, the directions for building an altar. Whenever... Sorry, wherever I cause my name to be honored, remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Exodus 20, 24. A blessing can occur from remembering, from making historical reference. So historical markers referring to God for Israel were a blessing. And I want to take you now briefly to the text in Exodus chapter 17. Here we find the exodus out of Egypt, of Israel, has transpired. And the events have transpired. In chapter 14, we read of the exodus. In chapter 17, we read of Miriam's song and her celebrating the moving out of captivity. We read in chapter 15 of Exodus about the several occasions as they're journeying away and as they're heading to the promised land of, the, of, being, of thirst being assuaged through several opportunities. And these were occasions for celebration. They had been cared for in the process of the Exodus. In chapter 16, the story of the manna and the quail. Food provided. And they remembered in chapter 17, now we come to the first occasion of any warfare that took place at all since the Exodus. This was the first encounter with the Amalekites in chapter 17. They were in the desert. They were heading to the promised land. And in our text, we find the result of the successes. And in the context, they built an altar to remember what God has done thus far. Such an experience, as I've mentioned to you already, is, was not a new thing for the children of Israel, to build an altar to remember, to build something to remind us of God's blessing. And so you could look at the chapters yourself on a later occasion. But churches today have great events as well. Churches need reminding as well. And so we're celebrating a 90th year this, later this year to remember as a reminder a new pastor's coming this year. And we will remember this year, 17, as it stands out in the history of Ebenezer. What I want to do this morning, though, is to take you uh, to two occasions of remembering. 
two celebrated, if you like, reminders. Obviously, this morning, the first involves the Lord's Supper. For the Lord's Supper, seated before us, planned before us, prepared before us, is a reminder. And we'll get to that a bit later. But the other aspect of drawing our attention to a reminder this morning involves images in our sanctuary that are reminders as well. Images that tell a story, a very significant story in the life of Ebenezer. And whatever your impression and your experience in images, because as you know in church history, there have been debates about, the, about images and whether you worship them and, you know, that whole battle. We're not going there today. This is not a problem for Ebenezer, all right? But there are images, of course. The cross, a picture of Mary as an artist's conception, a picture of Jesus. You've seen reminders like this, images, everywhere. In the Greek, the word icon simply means an image. A devotional image is an icon in the Greek. Now, have you ever noticed this? Do you know what it is? I say this because obviously, most of the time, you don't see this. Because of the more modern developments of music and a screen. All right, let's raise the screen, please, Flo, and we'll leave it up. So here before you is a series of symbols that have been created as a reminder of the significance of our faith. And here they are. They've been there the whole time. A little bit of history on this, if I may. Um, Dr. Albert uh, Felberg was here from 1951 to 1959. And I have to be careful, obviously, about this because i got people here who will correct me if I'm wrong. And it was under his leadership that the building across the street was sold, and it was under his leadership, as I understand it, that the nursery on this corner was purchased, and then a building was constructed in which you sit. And as the congregation, through those months or years, and probably a committee, and you may have even been on the committee, figured out, you know, about what the sanctuary might look like and all the details and so forth, somebody came up with the idea Let's put some symbols of reminder of our faith at the front. Symbols of reminder of our faith. Things that are significant in the life of Ebenezer. And although there are actually seven, let's look at the six of them this morning. The bottom two symbols, of course, as they're encircled, are very familiar to you because every Sunday when you come, they're the only two showing. And so they're very familiar. The others, unfortunately, for whatever reasons, as obvious, are less familiar. When the building was first built in 1955, completed in 55, by the way, there's a plaque over here on the building, hidden behind the trees, of course, again, right? Hidden behind the trees that indicates the date of the construction of our building. And as that was done back then, as I remember, wherever you were and wherever I was, there was no such a thing as screens and music and overheads and all that. And so it's pretty obvious that the thing to do is have these six symbols right there where we could remind ourselves of the significance of our faith. 
So there's some downsides to a screen, but it improves whatever when I'm not getting into that debate. But it is interesting how things hang on because Grant, our uh, music uh, director, still, every week, when we open up a hymn, he gives you the number of the hymn book. We, churches haven't used hymn books for years as we move to, you know, on to different forms of worship. He still gives you the hymn book number. That's hanging on to a good tradition, Grant. Thank you very much. Not many of us, however, look it up. So here you are before you this morning and covered by the screen going up are six, at least for the moment, six symbols of our faith, reminders of our faith. The first, and I want to start at the bottom, obviously, because you look at it all the time, but because I want to end in a certain way. So we're going to start at the bottom with the lamb. The lamb, we're reminded, is a reference to Jesus' son, who was called in John 1.29. Let's read John 1.29. I've got it here, of course. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. In Exodus 12 and 21, what was going on was, in the Exodus, as they left from Egypt and eventually entered in the Promised Land, the experience of the Lamb is a reference to the Passover. As you'll remember, that's what we're doing. We're reminding ourselves. And there, as the Passover was prepared, a Lamb was taken and killed, and the blood of the Lamb was put on the doorpost of every Israeli home. And as the angel of death passed over all of Egypt, the whole country, there was a massive death of every firstborn male, except in the homes where the blood was on the post. Because a lamb was slain. Some cases, if they were poor, they would share a lamb. So one, two families would share the same lamb if they were poor, but the blood was put on the post. For the lamb became the symbol of the Passover in preparation for that. And in the preparation from Exodus, it says, and make sure you tell, make sure you tell your children of this event. Reminders are intergenerational. That's why we have them. Tell your children. So the annual Passover lamb would later represent the sins of the Israelites being forgiven. Sins are forgiven by sacrifice. That's how it works. Now notice with the lamb, and I actually had to go up and look more closely, but notice with the lamb is a cross. The cross, of course means that the lamb was, life was given, not by a knife or any other method as was the original, but the lamb Jesus died on the cross. He became that one lamb once for all, which we remember at communion. Once for all, Jesus died. Not every year as the Hebrew tradition was to kill a lamb to remember the Passover every year. Jesus died once for all the sins. Notice one other thing, if you will, briefly, and that there's something else on that. And it's actually a banner. On the cross is a banner. Now, in the text, uh, verse 15, Moses built an altar, in our text, Moses built an altar of remembrance and called it, The Lord is my banner. 
And a banner celebrates praise for generations, for history. We hold up banners for praise. That banner on there is for praise, for what the Lamb has done on the cross. In the Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. Remember the song, of course. A banner of praise. And then in Isaiah, all you people of the world, you who live on earth, when a banner is raised on the mountains, you will see it. And when the trumpet sounds, you will hear. The banner is celebrative, as is the banner right there. So the first symbol reminds us of the banner of truth, which actually as well defeats Satan. We won't get into that this morning. Second is the cup, just to the left, right, to the left of the Lamb. The cup represents a design from earlier times. It reminds us of communion, of course, which is tied to the Passover, as I've said. Jesus' experience of the Passover with his disciples led to the Lord's Supper. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. Now, at the Passover, which was traditional for him, as all Hebrew descendants of his, right back to the time of of, of the escape of Egypt... All the way through at the Passover, four cups were used and shared at the Passover. And each of the cups had a meaning or a definition. Cup one, cup two, cup three, and cup four. And they all meant something different. For our purposes this morning, I only want to refer to the third cup because in 1 Corinthians 1.25, which I'll read later, it says this. After supper... Jesus took the cup. And Paul is very insistent through the Holy Spirit why it was after supper. Because the third cup was only picked up at the Passover after the meal. The other cups earlier. So the writer uh, uh, of Corinthians is very specific for us to know that the third cup is important in the Passover because Jesus changed its meaning. The cup represented redemption or the covenant. The covenant with God through Abraham. That was the third cup in the Passover. Jesus took that cup and described events that would soon occur. Jesus took that cup to represent, as he said, the new covenant in my blood. Changed the meaning of the Passover third cup to the new covenant. I'm sure they didn't quite get it then at that first Lord's table, but we've since discovered quite clearly what it meant. He knew what would soon be accomplished as he celebrated Passover with his disciples, accomplished on the cross. He took a Passover symbol and updated it, upgraded it to refer to Jesus' death on the cross for all mankind. This is our reminder at Easter, and that's the cup that reminds us of the significance of Jesus' death And we remember at the Lord's table. Thirdly, the word. Notice the word up one. On the right is open. Very significant. Whoever put this together, very sharp. The Bible is open. It's open to all. The essence of Christian education is what? The open Bible. For us to look, to get into, to study. This symbolizes the Bible, God's holy word to mankind which we discover in reference to in 2 Timothy 
3, 16 and 17, which reads, All Scripture, this, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture, catch that. That's why it's up here. All Scripture is God-breathed, inspired and useful for what? Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, you and me, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is for the express purpose of revealing God's self, revealing Jesus, revealing the Holy Spirit, and revealing the plan for eternal salvation. Hear me now, no other written manuscript carries the mark of the Holy Spirit, which I've said before. Of the Spirit's inspiration of the Word, of the concept, of revelation, of the summation of end times, given to us through the work of the Spirit, speaking through men, no other written document on earth has the... Oh, the word's gone. I can't even pronounce it. Imperture? What is it? Never mind. Has the sign. No other word ever written in the history of the world has the sign of the influence, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. No other special document. No other scripture. That's why it's up here, because the Holy Spirit is inspired only the Word of God. So all scripture is inspired. And so we take it and we put it up as a symbol today as a church because we want to tell the world who God is. And that's how we discover it. I read this week of a professor from Oxford. Actually, he travels a bit. He's a professor at Oxford and he's a professor in Chicago. And I read about his, uh, what he's doing at this particular time in his life as he studies cultural responses to God's word. So what is, and this is something that faces all of us, even in our word of testimony, what is the cultural response? And it's changed significantly over the years. And so this professor, Dr. Kowloon Suisse, has an article, and it's making reference to the nuns. Now, let me spell that for you, okay? Because it's a new term coming down the pipe. And it's used already a lot. Let me tell you where it's used. You do a survey. A, B, C, D, none of the above. You've seen that. That's the none, okay? None of the above. It's been happening in surveys for years. But currently, today, it is a very prominent word. There's a group of people in the world, a growing group of people, mostly millennials, but us too. Never mind that one. Who are part of the nuns. That's a group of people who say none of the above. And it's a growing category. So this is what, uh, this is what Dr. Suisse has been studying for the last 15 years. And as a Christian, as a believer, what he's curious about is those who answer none to the question about their religious beliefs and affiliations. So he's been surveying, survey, surveying people for some 15 years, asking questions about faith. All right? And what he gets is, I don't want or need your God. Thank you very much. That's the definition of a nun. I don't want it. I don't care. I don't believe in it. I don't need it. 
All right, so he's studying the nuns. It's a large percentage in the Western world. To the brief discussion and witness about Jesus and to the answer that one does not believe in God, when they say they don't believe what you're pushing, I have nothing to do with it, I have none of it, he says to them this, and I want you to hang on to this. He says to them this, please describe to me the God you don't believe in. Please tell me, in a coffee conversation, in a relaxed atmosphere, why don't you tell me a little bit about the God you don't believe in? And then he says, nine out of ten times, he says to the person, well, I don't believe in that God either. Because of the ambiguities and the misunderstandings and the lack of trust of God's word, people just don't know who God is today. And when you and I begin to talk about it, they become nuns. I'll have none of it. Thank you very much. All right. The caricatures and the misrepresentations of our Christian God are abundant. And the awareness can lead to a personal sharing about God. If you think about this, I believe this will give you and I a little bit of a heads up. That we might, in a friendly, over-coffee conversation, listen to what people really think about their God as opposed to what it teaches there. The Bible. All right, let's move on quickly to the fish. From the earliest days, the Christian church, beginning with the Roman world, a fish represented Christian faith. It's a symbol for us, a reminder for us of Christian faith. For a believer in Jesus Christ at the time, it was a secret. A fish symbol was used as a secret between two people who were believers that they didn't want the rest of the world to know. And so the fish became that symbol. You've seen it on cars and in various places, even in our own time. A simple fish with nothing written in it, just a simple fish. It's, be, it, it's a fish that reminds us of the symbol of our faith. <clears throat> Jesus in the New Testament with his disciples took the concept of food, that is, fish is food, and changed it. And when he said, he said, come follow me and I will send you out to be fishers of people, he changed the image of food to the image of faith. And a person who searches for people needs to know who Jesus is. In the Greek, just in passing, the, the Greek word for fish is ichthus. It's a six-letter word. And if you, it's an acrostic, which has come to be known by some. And the five words, these five words, are really the acrostic for ichthus fish. They are Jesus Christ, God's in the middle, theos, ichthus is in the middle, th is for God, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. And so every time a Greek person saw a fish, they thought, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. A secret message. So we have a fish up here at the front. Fifthly, a dove. As we move up, we have the dove. And notice the dove is in flight. It's the fifth symbol as we go up. Now, there are several types of birds, obviously, in the Old Testament. The one that stands out for us is Noah's experience at the, uh, at the ark, in which he took a dove and sent it out several times, and it was the dove that went out, and the final time, the dove didn't come back, and of course, as the story goes, then Noah let all the animals out of the ark. But the dove is only mentioned four times in the New Testament. All the same reference. Right? 
Each of the four Gospels mentions the dove once. And of course, it's the experience of Jesus' baptism. When after he was raised from the water, uh, the Holy Spirit came and it says, like, and be careful, like a dove. It's an image, all right? It's an impression. It's what they saw. It's what they understood. God himself came in an image like a dove and landed on Jesus and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And throughout church history, the symbol of the dove is the Holy Spirit, lest we forget. Matthew chapter 3, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Symbol and image is an easier way for us to remember as we see it. God's Holy Spirit, critical to the life of church, a critical illustration, a critical image that, w- that the people back in the 50s, Ebenezer folk, thought this needs to be included in these six symbols. And lastly, the candlestick. When I first looked at it, I thought it's a lamp. And there's lots of images about a lamp. But actually, I think not. I think some of you were here, you could remind me, but I think really it's an image of a candlestick. And there's lots of thoughts around this. But I have it here at the top, as you have. I'm not sure of the wisdom of it back then, but I've gone from the bottom to the top because, and from the right to the left because I think the image of the candlestick is extremely significant for us. At the top, last one. You know, I can remind you that this, the church, Ebenezer, is not the building. Correct? And, and I've said this, and others have said this over the years. You know this. The church in the New Testament is people. And the people meet in the building. Lest we worship the building, right? The people meet in the building. The church is the building. Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do the people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify you. Is that what it says? <laughs> no, of course not. And glorify your Father, which is in heaven. This reminder is seen by each of us on a regular basis as a symbol important to all of us because we are the light of the world. We are like a lampstand with a candle inserted that is lit. And the church of Jesus Christ does not have to meet in a building. We could meet on a public square and be the church. We could be on a beach and be the church. We would be the light on the street corner. We would be the light on the beach. But instead, we leave a building here on this corner with all this symbolism for the world to see, telling the story 
of Jesus Christ. And of course, and finally, because it's more than six, and only briefly, I cannot forget the last symbol, which by God's grace and the wisdom of those in architecture is never covered. The cross. Every time you come in, it's there. Never covered. Always evident. Many times lit, if we remember. Many times backlighted. So you and I will see it specifically and always. The cross. A symbol worn by millions. A symbol hidden under shirts and collars. A symbol in pockets. A symbol on uh, tattoos on people's bodies. There's one... uh, I saw in the last year where, uh, uh, I think he's a singer, I, don't, I can't remember now, but I think he's a gospel singer with a cross on his heart. Crosses have been and always have been ever and always a symbol of our faith and the cross reminds us of the Lord's table. As I conclude this morning, as I just had you enjoy the refresher of this little history lesson, as I refer to some neat things that have happened in Ebenezer, let me conclude, please, in this way. Great events bring about remembrances and reminders. These images I've pointed out were created as a result of a celebration, as a result of a job well done. They were up here after a congregation built a building and went through all that effort of considering and committees and selling and purchasing and constructing, and working, and many volunteered over years. And finally, in 1955, it was opened. And you celebrate it. And you have a symbol here, this building, of that. But my friends, that was a while ago. The Old Testament is full of occasions where the children of Israel stopped, where prophets stopped, where New Testament characters stopped. And build a reminder. Because the importance of a reminder is that there's going to be another. There's going to be some other event in history, some other occasion. And as I finish this morning with this particular sermon, I have... A question or two for us as a congregation. What is this congregation in East Vancouver going to be challenged to do once we've got the pastor, you know, once we've got the celebration over, once we look to the coming years of 18 and 19, what is this congregation going to do that's going to need another celebration? What's this congregation going to be challenged to accomplish that's going to finally come to a point where we need to celebrate this. We need to build an altar. Look what God has done in our lives. And it's going to happen again. What? What do you think? Dream with me. Plan with me. Pray with me. The church is just not about Sunday morning worship. Right? You know that. The church is about following the challenge to tell the world who God is. How is he going to use Ebenezer? And how is it going to be in a, a year or two or three or four where you're going to come together again and say, look what God has done here in East Vancouver for us. The text says in Exodus 17 and 16, because hands were lifted up to the throne, 
of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites. And I've inserted the word nuns instead of Amalekites. All right? You got with me? The Lord will be at war against the nuns from generation to generation. They're out there. And they haven't a clue what you know. They haven't a clue about this. But they are searching. They are looking. And I look forward to the task that is yours in the coming months and years in which the congregation comes together with the leadership and says, I, we think this is what God wants us to do. Let's try it. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for these dear, dear folk that you love so much, for the history that we think about and reflect on today. Father, I thank you, Lord, that throughout history, you cause us to pause and reflect on what you've done. Father, this morning as we gather around this table, you will once again remind us of the work that Christ did. Challenge us as a congregation this morning to continue that work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.